Let's go ahead and uh, pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful for sending your Son to redeem us. We're thankful for your word that instructs us and guides us. We thank you for sending we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to help us. So Lord, as we gather and look into your word, we just pray that it might change our hearts and change our minds to help us think rightly about who you are and what you've accomplished for us. Father, help our minds to be engaged and our hearts to be comforted. And we just thank you for this time and this place that we can do this very thing, to hear your, your holy word. Father, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go ahead and invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 27 and 28 this morning. We're going to be spending most of our time in verse 28 because it has a couple of things there that we need to think deeply and understand rightly. There seems to be, more than ever in our day, a real lack of discernment as to what biblical Christianity is and and what it looks like. Eastern mysticism is encroaching into Christian thought and practice at a very alarming rate. A few of you have heard me talk about over the last few weeks on the internet this California church that has the uh, glory cloud that comes into the uh, building and during its services supposedly being the glory of the Lord. Uh, It seems to be now they are getting into something called grave soaking or grave sucking, they might call it, and sometimes you might see it as mantle grabbing. Uh, The belief is is that if you go to the graves of these revivalists and preachers, that the Holy Spirit still rests upon that body and those bones in the ground, and that if you go to that grave site and just lay there and pray in Jesus' name, that you're going to get the same impartation, is the word they like to use, the impartation of that same powerful spirit that worked in their lives can work in yours. And so the the thought is that you're soaking the spirit up out of the grave. This is, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing but pure paganism. Even Charisma Magazine, of all people, who is out there theologically, are writing articles about how this is a totally unbiblical practice. But by and large, most people are really, they're sort of cautious. They're really unwilling to speak up and say anything against it because they're afraid of being labeled as judgmental or uh, hypocritical or even anything like that. Uh, Heaven tourism, as it's been called, is selling millions upon millions of books about people who have reportedly took a trip to heaven and back. And there's soon to be a movie released about one, if I'm not mistaken. The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, Heaven is for Real, 90 Minutes in Heaven, 9 Days in Heaven, 40 Days in Heaven, To Heaven and Back, A Flight to Heaven, My Time in Heaven, My Journey to Heaven, and the list of books go on and on and on. I think I found about 25 different titles of 
people who said that they've been to heaven and back. But basically, all of these authors have written books about their supposed trips to heaven and back, and millions of Christians are buying them and believing them to be true. One that I know of has recanted his story, and not coincidentally, many of these books, they have conflicting ideas about what heaven looks like and what Jesus looks like and angels and all those types of things. And it's not really that surprising because they're not true. Yet those who speak up against such books are considered mean-spirited, and you're too critical. Antinomianism, or anti-law, or the hyper-grace movement, as it's sometimes been called, is alive and well. Uh, Christian liberty has now become the idol of a new generation of believers. They argue that grace essentially is so complete in you that there is absolutely nothing you should strive for, nothing that you should do, because it's just something that happens to you. In other words, growing in grace of the Lord Jesus Christ requires no effort on your part. It's totally a passive process. Yet any challenge to them, and you're immediately shut down with the label of being a legalist, or even worse, the dreaded title of fundamentalist. But the Bible warns us that we are to be watchful. We're to watch out for false teachers. We are to watch out for false gospels. We are to watch our doctrine carefully. But the only way that we're going to be able to be watchful and to know what is false is you've got to know what is true. Truth doesn't change over time. Truth doesn't change with the culture. Truth doesn't depend upon the interpreter. Uh, And we don't say, what does this Bible verse mean to you? How many times have you been in a small group or a Bible study and someone says, hey, what's this Bible verse mean to you? What we should say is, what does God intend for it to mean? And so truth isn't dependent upon the interpreter. But the only way that we're going to know what is false is to know that which is true. Because truth, by its nature of its definition, it excludes, it separates, it delineates between two opposing ideas. That's why we are so intentional about trying to preach and teach God's Word here, is because it is the only source of truth, and part of the church's mission is to be the pillar and support of truth, as 1 Timothy 3.15. That's why we try to sing it. That's why we try to read it. That's why we try to preach it. Because the world is against the truth. They hate the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. And it all started in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan said to Eve, Has God said? Question mark. What God has said through His Word is the only place that we are going to find objective, eternal, absolute truth. It's timeless, it's absolute for all ages, all cultures, and all peoples. And so the only way that you're going to know whether you should head to your nearest graveyard, the only way that you're going to know if you should rush to the bookstore to go get your latest book on heaven tourism or, or go to the movies to watch it on film, or whether you should look, listen to some charismatic pastor with a Greek tattoo on the inside of his forearm, is to know the absolute truth revealed in God's Word. That's it. It is that simple. Your orthopraxy, or which is just a fancy word of saying that your right actions or what you do 
is predicated on your orthodoxy. That's the fancy word for saying your right beliefs or what you think. Your actions are driven by your beliefs. And both a right belief and a right practice are absolutely essential and indivisible for the true follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus emphasized this in John 8, 31 and 32 when he said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In other words, knowing what Jesus has said and doing what Jesus has said are essential and inseparable. And so before you rush out and buy the latest, hottest selling Christian book that supposedly has the words of Jesus or the latest trip to heaven, you better get your nose in this book first. And before you go out and you practice necromancy or try to supposedly conjure up the Holy Spirit out of the ground, you might want to take a look at the book. And before you decide to try to adhere to a let go and let God dogma, you better read what the Bible says about your Christian life first. And so it's with that premise that we come to our text today, that understanding. So if you're in Luke chapter 11 with me, I want us to read verses 27 and 28 this morning. Luke chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I want to invite you to do so. God's inerrant word says this. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You may be seated. We began chapter 11 with Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray and how they should be persistent in prayer. But then in verse 14, what should have been a joyous occasion, it quickly turned sour by the scribes and the Pharisees who started to vocalize some hostility towards Jesus as he cast out a demon out of a man. Now we're going to see this same reaction in chapter 13 when Jesus heals a woman who's doubled over with a spirit for over 18 years and he does it on the Sabbath. But as we progress through the book of Luke, we're going to start to see this decreasing frequency of healings and miracles, and we're going to see an increase in his teaching ministry. And likewise, we're going to start to see Jesus have a decreasing tolerance for the scribes and the Pharisees' false teaching, and they are going to reciprocate by having an increase in hostility towards Jesus, which ultimately is going to culminate in the cross. And every interaction of Jesus with either the crowds, the Pharisees, or his disciples, it just gives him an an opportunity to teach. And one such opportunity arises in our text today from a woman in the crowd. Now, over the last couple weeks, we saw how Jesus was correcting their false assumptions about exactly where his power came from, with, with healing of the man who was mute. They accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, right? Or basically what they were saying is that you're casting out demons by the power of the dung god. And so he asks them, he says, well, what do your sons do it by? What power do they have? And he tries to reason with them a little bit, and he challenges them. And then verses 24 through 26, he explained to them the danger of those false exorcisms and any attempt at personal moral reform. 
Because the state of that person who attempts to live a merely ethical life is in danger of ending up all the worse. In order to truly guard oneself's soul for eternity, there has to be a new tenant that takes up residence. And that new tenant that has to take up residence is the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit dwells, no evil spirit can enter. People need spiritual regeneration, not merely a moral reformation. And when you have the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us that you are sealed with him, as it does in Ephesians 1.13. It says that he dwells within you, as it does in 2 Timothy 1.14. And the Holy Spirit is the absolute greatest gift that God could give you. It's the Spirit that equips us for every good work. It's the Spirit that assures us that we are children of God. It's the Spirit that is our helper. It is the Spirit that guides us into all truth. It's the Spirit that's going to produce in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's the Spirit that brings us peace and comfort. And one day, it's going to be the Spirit that raises us from the dead, just as He raised Jesus from the dead, and He's going to change us into glory. But without that spirit, you will experience none of these things eternally. And to try to live a good, moral, ethical life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit is futile. There's no lasting, eternal benefit. But as Jesus is teaching these Pharisees about the danger of self-reformation, a woman from the crowd speaks up in verse 27, where it says, while Jesus was saying these things, One of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. So we have this break in the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, or a a momentary reprieve from this woman who speaks up. Now, we don't know who this woman is. It doesn't say. The text doesn't tell us. And this account is only found here in Luke and in none of the other Gospels. But the focus isn't necessarily on her, but it's what Jesus says to her in verse 28. But whoever this was, this would have absolutely been a bold move for this woman, because in her culture, in a crowd like this, for a woman to speak up, that was a no-no. It's just not something a woman would do. But she has this outburst that is completely the opposite reaction than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And instead of saying that Jesus is serving the God of dung, the lady cries out by saying, what a blessing it must have been to have Jesus as a son. If the Pharisees were trying to cut him down at the knees, this lady's trying to build him up. If the Pharisees were insulting, this lady is affirming. And to an even greater extent, she was expressing gratitude and praise for the ministry that she was witnessing before her very eyes. Because in that very culture, a woman was valued based on her ability to bear sons. If we were giving out awards, that would be Kat Scherzinger today. <laughs> but but they, would, they would also be valued upon the accomplishments that those sons would do. Proverbs 10.1 says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. But this woman, she can't control herself in her outburst of a beatitude towards the womb that bore Jesus and the breast that fed him. And so she's kind of a going against the cultural grain a little bit, if you will. 
especially being in such a mixed audience with this crowd. She can't restrain herself in speaking of her admiration for Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us need to be more like this woman. How many of us probably need to speak up a little bit more in praise and adoration about Jesus when we're in mixed company? Meaning, how many of us are too afraid to speak about Jesus and speak up for him when we're in crowds that we don't want to be singled out? When was the last time that you were bold in sharing your faith, sharing the gospel with someone and telling them about your Savior, even if it's not in a crowd, but just on a one-on-one basis? When was the last time you spoke affectionately about Jesus with someone whom you had no idea where they stood with him? This lady had no such shame. She was overcome to the extent that she needed to boldly cry out to him. But then in verse 28, Jesus responds to her. He says, but he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And so Jesus responds with a beatitude of his own. Now, on first read, when you see that, on the contrary, it seems like he's saying to her, no, 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 that's not necessarily true. It, it seems to be a rejection of this woman's statement. But this same Greek word that's used for on the contrary is used in Philippians 3.8. When Paul writes, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So just as Paul is agreeing with his previous statement in Philippians 3.7 when he said that he counted all things as lost for Christ's sake, he basically is ramping up his statement by saying, more than that, I count all things as lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. So he's not really discontinuing or discounting rather his Philippians 3.7 statement. He's just amplifying it a little bit. And the same is true of Jesus here. He's not so much saying, no woman, that's so wrong, let me tell you what's right. What he's saying is that Mary was truly blessed, but rather he's correcting her with a comparison. It would be like you eating a donut from Hostess, right? You eat the donut and you say, that's a good donut, right? And then you get a donut from Der Dutchman and you say, that's a good donut, right? It wasn't like the Hostess donut was not good, right? And it wasn't satisfying to you. But if you had the choice, right, you're going to say, I want the Der Dutchman donut, right? Because it's clearly better. So if anybody brought donuts, bless you today. But Mary most certainly was a blessed woman. She even said so of herself in Luke 148 in her Magnificat when she says, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. But she has absolutely every right to call herself blessed because she birthed the Messiah. There is no other woman on earth who could receive such a blessing. But her greatest blessing was this. It wasn't the fact that she was a mother to her son, but the greatest blessing that she received was she was a disciple to her Lord. As Augustine wrote in his book, Holy Virginity, he wrote, Mary was more blessed in accepting the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. So this woman's statement is correct, that Mary is a blessed woman in birthing Jesus. But there's a higher truth here to be learned. And Jesus is not reproving her statement. He's giving her an improvement on her statement. 
And so he enlightens this woman in the crowd. He sees this as a teachable moment here about who the truly blessed are. And he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So first of all, Jesus says that the blessed are those who hear the word of God. And blessed simply means happy. Those who are content. Those that find great satisfaction and joy. And what are they supposed to be uh, satisfied with? They're to be satisfied by hearing the word of God. You know, if there's ever been a battle that's been fought in all of Christendom, and it seems to be warring today, it has to be with the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. You can add to that the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture as well, but the sufficiency of Scripture is constantly under attack, even from those who would be claiming to be part of an evangelical church. But this is really the foundational, the foundation rather, of the great building of God upon which the reformers fought and died for in the 16th century. Sola Scriptura. It's the Latin phrase for Scripture alone. It's what undergirds everything else as the other great Reformation doctrines such as sola fide, by faith alone, or sola gratia, by grace alone, or solus Christos, through Christ alone. And at the pinnacle, at the top, reaching upwards into the heaven, is the great of this great building would be solo de gloria, to the glory of God alone. But at the core... At the bottom of that foundation would be sola scriptura. Everything we believe, everything we hold dear, everything that we know about God and man, heaven, hell, life, death, salvation itself is revealed in the word of God. And the reformers were the ones that brought this battle to the doorstep of Rome and rejected the notion that the inspired word of God was on equal footing with church tradition and church authority. And if it was the reformers in the 16th century that laid that foundation of sola scriptura, then surely it was the Puritans in England in the 16th and 17th century that took that foundation and they took up their trowels and they built a wall around that fortress. The Puritans sought to purify the Church of England and reaffirm the doctrine of sola scriptura. But if we would fast forward today, that battle still rages on. And if you look at all the cults that have ever spawned, all the denominations that have ever divided, all the colleges and seminaries that have gone by the wayside, every church that has gone astray, it usually comes down to, what do you believe about the Bible? Is it inspired? Is it sufficient? Is it inerrant? Is it enduring for all times? When anyone or any organization starts to waver on these questions about the Word of God without answering in the affirmative, you have taken the first step off the cliff. So why is it so important to hear the Word of God, and how is it a blessing? The Word of God is the means by which God has revealed Himself and disclosed His redemptive purposes in this world, and it is sufficient to carry out all that He desires to do. In Isaiah fifty-five eleven, it says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. It's the means, the Word of God is the means by which He brings salvation in people. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have, not been, or you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, 
but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. The Word of God is what can tear a man down, cut out the cancer that's eating away at our souls with surgical precision, and then put us back together again. It is so powerful, and it's what cuts to the quick and judges our hearts. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It's piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both of bones and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Also in Jeremiah 23, 29, it says, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. The word of God is the means by which you live. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God is what keeps you virtuous and pure. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Likewise, in John 15.3, he says, You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. The word of God is your source of growth. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. In Acts 20.32, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And lastly, the word of God is your source of guidance. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Listen, everything that you need to know to be saved is in this book. Everything you need to know about how to follow the will of God is clearly stated in the Bible. Everything you need to know about living in such a way to please God is in Scripture. Everything you need to know about what you should think about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, life, death, eternity, is all contained in the Word of God. So have you been neglecting the Word of God? Have you been putting off knowing Him more intimately through His Word? Have you got yourself so occupied with the cares of this world that you don't seem to have time for God's word? And you are neglecting yourself a divine blessing. You are robbing yourself of joy. And so not only does Jesus say that those who are truly happy are those who hear the word of God, but those also who keep it. In other words... What Jesus is saying here is that those who will be truly blessed, those who will enjoy the most satisfying joy, will be those who hear the Word of God and obey the Word of God. Obedience is not an optional activity for those who are truly disciples of Jesus Christ. You can't get an A in theology and a D- in doxology. Knowing God and obeying God go hand in hand for the true disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't separate the two. You can't have knowledge and no obedience. You can't accept Him as Savior and then sometimes later accept Him as Lord and Master. Scripture never teaches that. In Matthew 12, 50, Jesus said, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. In John 14, 15, Jesus again said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John 2, 3 and 2, 3 through 6 says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner he walked. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. James 2, 2, 26 says, it cuts to, cuts to the quick right here, what he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So your obedience to God, your walking in his ways and his, his commandments are not something you can simply opt out of. God's good works are not an optional response to the gospel. They are an inevitable proof of the gospel in your life. Martin Luther once said that we are justified by faith alone, but we are not justified by a faith that is alone. We are called to be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. We are called to obey God. I want you to turn in your Bibles backwards with me to Jeremiah chapter 35 for just a moment. I want to show you something. Jeremiah chapter 35, if you find Isaiah, go back, go forward one book rather. In Jeremiah chapter 35, God shows the disobedient Jews an illustration of what an obedient people look like by bringing to Jeremiah a tribe and a group known as the Rechabites. And God tells Jeremiah, he says, this is what I want you to do, Jeremiah. I want you to call this tribe into the house of the Lord. And then I want you to bring them into one of the inner chambers. And then I want you to take and set some wine before them. And I want you to offer it to them for a drink. And so Jeremiah does exactly that. And he tells them to drink the wine in verse 5 of Jeremiah 35. And then in verse 6, the Rechabites say, no thanks. Nothing doing. No way. And they tell Jeremiah, they say, their father, Jonadab, commanded them to never drink wine and to not build houses and to never plant vineyards or even own one and that they are to dwell in tents all the days of their lives. And then so down in verse 8, if you read there with me, it says, We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, not to drink wine all of our days, we, our wives, our sons, and our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, and we do not have vineyard or field or seed. We have only dwelt in tents and have obeyed and have done according to all that Jonadab, our father, has commanded us. And so God uses this to show Jeremiah how a disobedient the people of Judah were to him. And he shows Jeremiah what unreserved, steadfast, obedient ought to look like. God tells disobedient Judah through Jeremiah, he says, Look, I told you what you should do and not do. I gave you commandments. I gave you ordinances. I gave you statutes. I sent my prophets to to you again and again as a warning and pleading with you to obey what I say. And here are these Rechabites. They hear the voice of their father that says, Don't drink wine, build houses, or own a vineyard. And they obey to the T. Not only the men of the house, but the wives and the sons and the daughters. Here is an example of what steadfast obedience looks like. Here's what obedience to a father 
looks like. And because of the faithfulness of those Rechabites, God says to them in verse 18, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab, your father, kept all his commandments, and done according to all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. What a blessing from God. What a joy. And that's what Jesus is trying to say to us. You want to experience the blessing of God? You want to have everlasting, satisfying joy? You want to be able to stand before God always in heaven, singing His praises for all of eternity? You have to obey Him. Because if you don't obey Him, on the day of judgment, He will say to you the most terrifying words that anyone will ever hear any time, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Is it always easy to do? No. No, it's not. In fact, it's hard work. It's hard. We need to get that into our mindset that we are in a fight for our faith. What we need to let go of is the mentality of let go and let God because it's not biblical. Your obedience is going to take effort on your part. Unlike your justification, sanctification is not a passive experience where you don't have to do anything at all and you just let God take care of it all. You can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Understand that. But it's going to require strength and effort on your part. You need to be living your Christian life in such an understanding that you are in a fight of your life. And your enemies are the flesh, the world, and the devil. And all three of them, they don't go to bed. They don't sleep. And they are constantly trying to draw you away from obedience to God. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called. Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, we're told, put on that full armor of God. Take up the full armor so that you'll be able to resist the evil day. In Luke 13, 24, which we're coming to, it says, strive to enter into the narrow door. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul tells us we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Apathy, stagnation, indifference to the things of God is not biblical and it's not an option for you. As Steve Lawson once said, we need to get into God's gym. We need to work out in the Word. We need to pump iron in prayer. We need to exercise the muscles of faith and obedience. And we must trim the baby fat. Those of you who are trying to exercise and diet to lose weight, you know that fat doesn't come off as fast as it came on. It's too many Dear Dutchman donuts. But it takes work. It takes work and lots of it. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said of this conflict in his book, Holiness. He said this, quote, The saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is their utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They eat, they drink, They dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go around a scanty round of formal religious services once or twice a week. But the great spiritual warfare, its watchings, its struggles, its agonies, its anxieties, its battles, its contests, of all this, they appear to know nothing at all. Let us take care that this case is not our own. 
Ladies and gentlemen, how many of us have become spiritual couch potatoes? How many of us have neglected the word of God? How many of us have laid down our swords and we put our armor in storage? How many of us have neglected the spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, scripture reading, serving, and worship? The only way that you are going to find any measure of happiness in this life, the only true source of satisfying joy that you will find, the only lasting pleasure that you are ever going to obtain is hearing the Word of God and obeying the Word of God. You won't find it in your homes. You won't find it in your possessions. You're not going to find it in your personal success at work. You're only going to find it by knowing God through His Word and then obeying God. He is the source of all blessing, happiness, and joy. And in no earthly thing will you find eternal satisfaction. We need to get into the fight. We need to get into the battle. We've got to pick up our armor. We've got to pick up this sword. And we've got to ride it into the tablets of our hearts. How is your life this morning? How is your obedience to Him? Is your life manifesting the fruits of the Spirit? Do those around you see increasing love, increasing joy, increasing peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in your life? Is that what people are seeing? Are you actively mortifying sin in your life by the strength and power of the Holy Spirit that your Heavenly Father has given to you? We need to take up the battle and fight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would convict our hearts. If anyone is apathetic or indifferent or sluggish to obey your word, Let this be a day of turning. Let this be a day that the full armor of God is put on. And Lord, by this power and strength of the Holy Spirit, help us to accomplish this. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this time you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.